Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for an opportunity to come before your people and break the bread of the gospel uh, with them. I pray, Lord, that you help us all to have open and receptive hearts to your word, to your message, and to whatever your Holy Spirit desires to do in us and through us. We pray, Father, once again for the people who are serving in any area on this campus tonight. We, We pray that you'll bless them, that you'll empower them, that you'll use them for your glory. We also pray, Father, that you help us to sense your presence. Lord, we know you're here. You're with us. You never leave us nor forsake us. You're omnipresent. But help us to sense your presence. And we ask that you would move in a mighty way and that you would inhabit Lord, the praises of your people. And I do pray for a fresh filling of your spirit and the ability to rightly divide your word of truth, Lord. So I pray for the gift of teaching. Father, we love you. We thank you. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. So we have arrived at the final chapter in Second Samuel. We've also arrived at the final lesson in our study about reaching our full potential in Christ, which was our theme through First and Second Samuel. And so these events that we'll read about In 2 Samuel 24, just want to let you know that you can also read about it in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And you're going to see a few more details in 1 Chronicles 21 that you may not see in tonight's chapter in 2 Samuel 24. Uh, But they go together. They're to be read together. And so where appropriate, I'll mention some details uh, from First Chronicles 21. So with that being said, let's look at Second Samuel 24, verse 1. It says, again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, go, number Israel and Judah. And so the anger of the Lord was, it was blazed forth or was burning hot against the people of Israel. And it says, and you see a capital H here, that he incited or stirred up David to number Israel and Judah. And so you're going to see some issues with that, and it can be easily cleared up as we move through the scriptures. But, but for now, this is where we are. This is what the scripture says. But later on, we're going to see that this act on David's part was sinful. This act of saying, go and number, go do a census of Israel and Judah. Register them. But but the question is, did God influence David to sin? Because we know that that was sin. We're going to see why that was sin as we move through the chapter. But is it God who influenced David to sin? So the first thing we want to do is jump to the New Testament. And we want to look at James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. We want to look 
as something that is true about God. We want to look at a principle here when it comes to temptation. It says in James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So in other words, he doesn't entice anyone to sin. And in verse 14 in James 1, it says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So first of all, we looks like we have an answer to that question. That did God really tempt David to sin by stirring him up to number Israel and Judah? But but Dorella still says he with a, a capital H. Some of you may be saying, well, that's why we look at First Chronicles twenty-one, verse one, because in First Chronicles chapter twenty-one, verse one, it, it tells us that that Satan actually moved David to number Israel. He, he actually stirred David's heart. He influenced David to number the people. And so if you look at 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, just knowing what we know about God there, about him not tempting anyone to do evil. And if we look at 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, uh, we can come up with a summary. And in that summary, we'll be able to conclude that because God was angry with Israel, obviously it's because of their sin, that he allowed Satan to influence David to count the people. So God himself didn't do the evil, but he allowed Satan to influence David to number the people. Why? Because God was angry with Israel because they were they sinned. And so we can include conclude also that this influence from Satan and this pride in David's flesh had led to David's decision to move forward with this counting of the people. And so what we see here is that God was using Satan and David's pride to open the door to discipline Israel and David. And so in the scriptures, even um, if you look at Job, you look at the story in Job, you, you look at um, the situation with, with Judas and his betrayal of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. When, when you look at all of those things, you, and when, even when you look at uh, Joseph and, and the jealousy of his brothers to, to sell him, when you look at all of those things, just for as an example, you can see that God can use the wicked intentions of the devil and the wicked intentions of people in order to accomplish his purpose. So that goes back to what we were saying in the song that God reigns above it all. He is sovereign. He is always in control, even when it looks like things are going awry, when it looks like things are falling apart. God is always on the throne. He's always in control. But now in verse 2, uh, back in Samuel 24, it says, So the king, speaking of David, said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, 
and count or take a census of the people, speaking of mainly the troops. These are the troops, the, the people who are part of the army. Why? Because he wanted to know the number of the people. And verse 3, it says, and Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people or, the, or to the soldiers a hundred times more than they are. And may the eyes of my Lord, the king, see it. But, but why does my Lord, the king, desire this thing? Well, first of all, uh, the king wasn't just talking to Joab, because if you look in First Chronicles 21, verse 2, he was speaking to Joab and the commanders. So once again, it says that in First Chronicles 21, 2, but also in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint. And so it was Joab and the commanders that 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 David was speaking to here to, to go throughout all the tribes and count the people from the north. That, that's what Dan is referring to, the far north in Israel, to Beersheba, which is in the south of Israel. But we see here that Joab, he wasn't happy. He wasn't happy with this directive. You see, Joab wanted to know the motive behind David wanting to count the people. See, David, of course, wanted to see the size of the military. He, he wanted to see how, how large his army was, how many people were in the army of Israel. And Joab, he, he was like, hey, you know, why, why are you doing this thing? And, and usually when, when you look at Joab and the types of things he did, all the um, deceitfulness and him killing people and, and things like that, you, you know, there's a lot of things that we can fault Joab for, but, but, but here, I, I think he's doing a good thing by asking David, why does he want to do this? Why does he want to number the army? And, and that's a lesson for us as well, because that lesson for us is that we, we should also want to know why and also evaluate the motive of others before we get involved in their situation. Why do you want me involved? Why do you want me to do what you asked me to do? What is your motive? What, what is your reasoning behind this? Because I don't see it in the word of God. I, I can't support it in the Bible, from the Bible. So, so why do you want me to do this thing that you're asking me to do? So it's wise to know and evaluate people's motives when when they ask you to do something when they command you to do something in fact it is good to do this even before we ourselves decides to do decide to do certain things not just when other people ask us to do things or command us to do things now we should evaluate our own hearts why are we doing that why why do we do what we do when we do certain things in church, have certain practices, you know, I always like to have a reason for something. You know, even when I told uh, my, my children no, that they couldn't do something, I always like to have a reason. I didn't like to just say no, just for the sake of saying no, just because I said no. I wanted to give them a reason uh, for something. And so even, even with me, before I make decisions, for myself, why am I doing that? What's, what, what's my motive? 
Why do we do what we do? Why do we have things set up the certain way that we have them? But why are things like that? And, and it's funny because the, 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 the saints will definitely ask you. And it will cause us as the staff to reevaluate things. Like, why do we do it that way? I guess it could be done a little better. And so we need to be open to those things. And we need to openly, um, you know, evaluate um, our motives. And, and even, like I said, other people's motives when they tell us to do things. And this is what we see Joab doing here. And in that, I say, he's setting a good example. In verse 4, it says, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed or it overruled Joab and against the captains or these commanders of the army. And therefore, Joab and the captains of the army, they went out from the presence of the king to count or register the people or these troops of Israel. And they crossed over the Jordan and they camped in Aurora on the right or the south side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad, or some translation would say in the middle of the river valley of the Arnon toward Gad and toward this place called Jazer. And in verse six, it says, then they came to Gilead into the land of Tatim Harshi. They came to Danjayan and around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold or to this fortress or this strong walled city of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And then they went out to, the, to uh, South Judah as far as Beersheba. So remember, Joab and these commanders, they are obeying David's command, even though they don't quite agree with it. And they're going throughout the land, counting the soldiers or these troops. In verse 8, it says, so when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people or the troops to the king. And, and there were in Israel, it's the northern uh, part of the nation, there were 800,000 valiant or brave men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah, that's in the southern part of Israel, there were 500,000 men. Now, according to First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 6, it says that Joab did not count Levi. He didn't count the tribe of Levi, and he didn't count Benjamin. Why? Because the king's word was abominable to him. It was detestable. It was disgusting to him what David asked him to do. And so he didn't count Levi. And, and first of all, the, you know, that, that's where the priests come from. So if you're of the tribe of Levi and of the lineage of Aaron, then obviously as a male, you would um, be in the priestly line. And so the Levites, you know, they would support the priests, you know, those who were not of um, the lineage of Aaron. They, they would help them in the service of the tabernacle, for example. And so Joab didn't count them. He didn't count the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin, by the way, was the tribe that the first king Saul came from. And so now the only thing we know here is that he didn't count them because it, what the king asked him to do was detestable. It was abominable to him. 
And in verse 10, it says, and David's heart. In other words, his, his conscience condemned or troubled him after he had numbered the people, after he numbered the troops. And so David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity, take away the sin or the guilt of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And in that, you see why David is called a man after God's own heart. So every time he messed up, he would confess his sin. He would repent. And what I see here from David is that this was a man who had a conscience that was still working. And conscience, by the way, refers to that sense of right and wrong that governs a person's thoughts and actions. The conscience is a sense of right and wrong that urges one to act morally. God had given every human being just that basic sense of right and wrong, a conscience. And so David's conscience is still working as we see here in verse 10. So, yes, that is a good thing. And I would say this about people today. See, people today, I would say, are in a bad position when they begin to justify their sin when they begin to justify their sinful lifestyle and not only in themselves, but in other people, and then they no longer feel bad for sinning. Uh, they, they, they feel that, that it's okay for people to, to live or walk in a sinful lifestyle and they don't feel bad about it at all. Their, their conscience does not even bother them. And so I would say that they are in a bad position. Well, people in that state, could very well be in what we would call a reprobate mind or a debased mind. In other words, it's a morally corrupt mind that, that God will turn people over to if they continue and purposely reject him over and over again. God has just let go of the reins and say, okay, that's the way you want it, then go ahead. And so they're going to begin to think and live like uh, what's good is evil and what's evil is good. Their conscience will no longer bother them. In fact, it will show that their conscience is seared. And it's no longer sensitive to that sense of right and wrong. That is a very dangerous place to be in. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now the Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, expressly or explicitly says that in latter times, and we are in latter times, we're in the last days, by the way. So in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own, and here is our word, conscience seared or branded or destroyed with a hot iron, which is most likely a branding iron. In other words, their conscience is dead. This is speaking of latter times. This is speaking of the last days in which we're living in. But notice, I don't want to skip this in verse one, that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. And, and it's uh, my personal belief that the people who um, commit you know, apostasy or depart from the faith, what is showing is that they were never truly born again in the first place. In fact, in one of the letters that God used John to write, it says they went out from us because they were really never of us. And so when they depart from the faith, it is revealing who they really are. You know, and Jesus even said as such, in fact, in the parable with the four different types of soil, there was only one that bore fruit. 
that was the good soil. Then Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 7, how some will say to him, Lord, Lord. But Jesus says, I never knew you, not I used to. And you lost a relationship, but no, you were never in a relationship. And so there are some, there's a difference between being part of the true church, which means you have to be born into. You have to be born again to be placed in the true church. That's a spiritual rebirth. When a person repents, put their faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit does his thing and and we're reborn and we become a part of the family of God spiritually. Those people are part of the true church. But but then there's some who are a part of what you would call the visible church. They've never been born born again, but they use the Christian lingo. They may say, Lord, Lord. Every now and then they may quote a few verses, but, but they haven't been born again. They may even hang around the visible church. And then when things get hot, when those thorns rise up, as it, as it tells us, and it chokes them out, as it tells us, as Jesus told us in one of them parables, or the, the, the sun blazes on them and so forth, and they guess what? They decide, oh, you know what? Christianity was just a phase. It was never for me. Well, that's because they were never truly born again. They don't have the new nature inside of them and so in latter times there's some who are going to claim of course to be a part of the body of christ but they're going to say that oh i used to believe this but i no longer do we see that we see that all the time we see people giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrine of demons you see this with so-called preachers and and it, it literally actually makes me upset when i see those videos and hear the stuff the things that they, that they say, they're giving heed to these deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. I wish they would do us all a favor and stop calling themselves Christians and just, just go, some, go do something else. Go, go sell something on the corner, like, I don't know, bookmarks or something. Go, go, sell, go do something else. Don't call yourself a Christian or a preacher and, and you're going to give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Speaking lies and hypocrisy and their own conscience seared, branded with a hot iron so that their conscience is dead. But, but thank God we have an example in the study of a man whose conscience was not dead. Oh, his, his heart was hurting. When, when he come to that realization that, oh, man, that, that wasn't right. Having those people numbered, that, that just... That wasn't right. That was appealing to my pride. See, David's conscience was not seared. But I'm going to tell you this. If you go out witnessing and, and maybe you spent time witnessing already, you're going to come across people who just don't care. They don't. I remember going street witnessing one time with, with, with Pastor Tony when we were younger. And, and we came across, you know, some people who were in the gang. And, and we asked this person, you know, where would they, where they think they were going, you know, if they were to die today? As far as eternity is concerned, the person said, hell, and they laughed about it. They thought it was funny. You're going to come across people like that. So at that point, to keep talking to those type of people, you'll be casting your pearl before swine. Instead, instead what we should be doing, if, if we come across those type of people, just move on to somebody else who's like a ripe apple and ready to receive the gospel move on the lord will lead you he'll open up those doors 
And in verse 11, it says, now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself and I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies? Notice how it went from years to months to now days. And this is where you're going to see the days. It says, or shall there be three days plague or disease in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. In other words, I have great anxiety. I'm in deep trouble. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. And so he had three choices. David had three choices, three different consequences that he can choose from. So one of them was seven years of famine. But according to the Septuagint and according to uh, First Chronicles uh, chapter 21, verse 12, it says three years of famine. Three months of fleeing before your enemies or three days of disease in your land. Choose one. And so all David says was, please let us fall into the hand of the Lord. But God was so merciful. He gave this man of God a choice. It's almost, it almost reminds me of, of, of when parents used to tell us, that, that when we were about to be chastised, when we were about to get a spanking, they used to tell us, choose a belt. And I would go in the closet and I would choose the, <laughs> the lightest, smallest belt. And, no, get another one. And, and so David was choosing his belt, so to speak. But he chose once again to fall into the hand of the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is merciful. Man is not, but the Lord is merciful. So, so in David's case, it's almost like choosing to be spanked by loving parents versus choosing to be spanked by a known criminal who has no value for your life like your parent does. And, and so this, this, this is what we see here from David, his choice. See, I don't want to fall into the hand of man because why? Man, they're not as merciful as my God. See, humans can go overboard. You see, even we as parents, we, we may not have pure motives or even the right attitude when chastising. Not 100% of the time, but God would always have the right attitude. He's always going to have the right motives when he chastises his children. And when he chastises his children, it's actually a sign of his love. And it's a sign that we are his children. Because he chastises those he loves, he He chastises those who are his. So if somebody can live a lifestyle of sin and not be chastised by God for it, then that person needs to question if they're really in the faith. But we see here that even in chastisement, God is merciful. You see, God cannot turn off that merciful switch. Why? Because God is an unchanging God. He doesn't change. If he can turn on and off, any attributes, then you would have to say that God is a God who changes, but he does not change. So even in chastisement, even in judgment, God is still a merciful God. 
But unfortunately, God's mercy is not appreciated by all people. See, there's many people who've come out of, for example, 2020, the quote unquote COVID season. And they're still not serving the Lord. They went into that COVID season, went through it without serving the Lord, came out of it, still not serving the Lord. In fact, they turned up the notch on the evil that they do. Not appreciating the mercy of God. Oh, I wish we would appreciate God's mercy the way David did. See, in verse 15, it says, so the Lord sent the plague. He sent the terrible disease upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, which is the three days. And so from Dan, that's the north in the nation of Israel, to Beersheba, again, that's the south, 70,000 men or soldiers of the people died. And so not only did the number of soldiers appeal to David's pride because it, it would help him to see, oh, I have all these soldiers, man, I'm a powerful king. We have a powerful nation. I could do whatever I want to do. So not only did uh, the number of soldiers appear, appeal to his pride, but it also served as something in which David could put his misplaced trust in the size of this army. But however, we see in verse 15 that, that some of these soldiers of the army in which David trusted, we see that 70,000 of them died. So you trust in this large army, David? Okay, 70,000 of them are gone. And so I would say to not underestimate the fact that God has the ability to remove that which we are trusting in. Or you're trusting in that 401k. You're trusting in that bank account. You're trusting in this job. You, you, you're worshiping this job. It's taking the worship that God deserved. God has the ability to remove it, to wipe it out. And so the question I want to pose is who or what is your object of, of trust? Who or what is your object of trust. And of course, the right answer should be the Lord. If it's not, I would repent and get it right with the Lord. Verse 16, it says, and when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction. In other words, he took pity or had compassion at that point. And, and so he said to the angel who was destroying the people, it is enough. Now restrain your hand, and the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arauna, or Ornan, the Jebusite. And a person who's a Jebusite, they were a descendant of Canaan's third son, according to Genesis chapter 10, verses 15 and 16. So Jebusites, by the way, they were native to Jabus, which was the ancient name of the city of Jerusalem. And so Arauna was a Jebusite. Another name for Arauna is Ornan, which you'll see in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. But we see here in verse 16 that the Lord is the one who stopped the angel from further destruction. Once he reached his hand over Jerusalem. So it was the angel that God was using to bring this plague upon the people. And notice that the destruction from this angel could only go as far as God wanted it to go. Which tell us that God is the one who sets the boundaries 
and chastisement. He's the one who sets the boundaries in judgment, even in eternity, ahead of time. He knows how far that chastisement and that judgment is going to go. But then in time, because it says that the Lord relented, he took pity. And so in time, you see also that God responds to human action. And so God already knew what he was going to do in eternity. He knew where the plague was going to stop, where he was going to stop that angel. He knew it in eternity. But once again, in time, as he's going through it with humans, you see him responding to human action again in time. So, so it's, don't think about that too much. I don't want anybody's brain to burst, but that, that's kind of how it works. In verse 17, it says, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And he said, surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, these people, these people of Israel, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house or in other words, my family. See, David did not like seeing the people suffer because of what he did, because he's the one who ordered the census to take place from the north to the south. And you also see this man of God here. He, he took and he was willing to take full responsibility for his decision, for his actions. That, by the way, is a sign of true leadership. Because true leaders don't look to blame others. They take full responsibility for their actions. They, they don't look for a fall guy for their poor choices. They, they take full responsibility and they, and they try to find ways to fix the situation, to move on. Instead of finding all their time, spending all their time trying to blame others. See, but David, once again, was a true leader, willing to take, willing to take responsibility. Verse 18, it says in Gad, and remember, this is the prophet who spoke to David. He came that day to David and he said to him, go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. So this threshing floor, by the way, was a smooth, hard, flat surface, which was used for grain to be separated from the straw. And so they would beat the grain out of the straw or, or out of the chaff. Was, the chaff was a part that they didn't need. It was the waste. So they'll beat it out or they would use oxen and cattle to repeatedly walk over the sheaves to, to get the grain out of the straw, the husk, the, ch- the chaff. And so that's the threshing floor. And, and around us, or Ornan's threshing floor, by the way, and this is interesting, it would actually turn out to be the site of where the temple will eventually be built by Solomon, David's son. And this same place, this, this thresh, around this threshing floor, and, and also this place of where Solomon is going to build the temple, Second Chronicles 3.1, if you want to check it out on your own time. That, that was also the place on Mount Moriah where Abraham was going to offer up his son Isaac, Genesis Chapter 22. And so that's pretty interesting facts there when, it, when we talk about this threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. Again, located in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. And we see here that David was to perform acts of worship there. 
He was supposed to erect an altar to the Lord. And when you see that an altar is going to be erected, that means some worship is going to take place. Sacrifices are going to be made. And so he was supposed to perform acts of worship here at the place where God spared Jerusalem. So I'm going to say that one more time. David was was supposed to perform acts of worship at the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite, where God spared Jerusalem. You see, when we learn about how Jesus took the wrath of the Father upon himself on our behalf to give us an opportunity to be spared, that that should make us want to receive the forgiveness of our sins. And it should also make us want to worship the Lord. Why? Because we have been spared in the Son. Speaking of Jesus Christ, the punishment that we deserve, he took it upon himself. And so if anybody goes to hell when this life is over, it's not because they didn't have an opportunity to be spared. It's not because they didn't have a chance to have their sins forgiven. It's not because they didn't have a chance to have a relationship with the God of the Bible, with the God of the universe. Not because of all that, but it's because they choose to go their own way and, and not receive Jesus Christ, the one who spares us. And so the fact that believers, you have been spared because you received Jesus Christ into your lives, the fact that you have been spared should cause you, like it did for David, it should cause you to worship. In verse 19, it says, So David, according to the word of God, he went up as the Lord commanded, now Arauna looked and he, and he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And so uh, Arauna went out and he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. It was an act of respect. In verse 21, it says, then Arauna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said to buy the threshing floor from you to build an altar to the Lord that the plague or this pestilence may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arauna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and um, the threshing implements or the sledges or boards. And here's the yokes of the oxen for wood. So everything you need, David, to worship the Lord, to, to make these sacrifices here, I'll, I'll just give it to you. Anything you need. Says all these things, O king, in verse 23, Arauna has given to the king and Arauna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Arauna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels. Or one and one fourth pounds. Some translation says uh, about 20 ounces or 570 grams in weight of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord. And he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, which are also fellowship offerings. And so the Lord heeded. He listened to the prayers for the land. And the plague or disease was withdrawn from Israel. Now, according to 1 Chronicles 21, verse 25, 
Uh, David paid 600 shekels of gold for the place. Whereas here in verse 24, it says that he paid 50 shekels of silver. So why does here say in verse 24, he paid 50 shekels of silver in 1 Chronicles 21, 25, it says that David paid 600 shekels of gold for the place. Are, are we seeing a contradiction? And the answer is no, this is not a contradiction because 1 Chronicles 21, verse 25 is including all of the property, not just the threshing floor, but it includes all of the property. So that's why 1 Chronicles 21, 25 includes a higher price of, of 600 shekels of gold. Whereas in verse 24, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, it is only talking about the price of the threshing floor where, where David was going to build that altar. And so I just wanted to put that out to you because you may read things in your margin or someone may, may try to come to you and try to pose a tough question to you. So now you have the answer to that. But, but, but in this study, what we see here from Arauna, uh, this man who wanted to give everything to King David, well, we see that th- this was a nice gesture B- because he said, hey, David, everything you need for worship. To the Lord, everything you need for sacrifice, I got it. I'm giving it to you for free. Whatever you need to make those offerings, David, it's yours. But, but David insisted on paying the price for everything in verse 4. As he says, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a, a price in verse 24. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So he insisted, David insisted on paying the full price for everything. In other words, David was not going to be cheap when it came to the Lord. He was not going to be cheap when, his, when it came to his offering to the Lord, his sacrifice, his worship to the Lord. He was not going to be cheap with God. You see, God is worth the high price and even more when it comes to our sacrifices, when it comes to our worship. The God that we serve is better than a hand-me-down God. He's better than this hand-me-down worship. So David was like, no, I don't want you to hand anything to me, but but I'm going to pay full price. And giving offerings and sacrifices, by the way, are forms of worship. In fact, speaking of worship, anything you do to honor God is worship. Anything you do to honor him is worship. So in this case, we're talking about these offerings and sacrifices that David was going to offer up. So this plague will stop. The God that we serve, he deserves the best of our time. He deserved the best of our efforts. He deserves the best of our resources. And we see that principle here from David in this lesson who refused to accept the oxen and the, the threshing floor from, for free from around us. And so we see a principle here that real sacrifice costs us something. Real sacrifice should cost us. So in other words, if it's not valuable to us, 
If that time, if those efforts, those resources, if if they're not valuable to us, then why offer it to God who owns everything anyway? Real sacrifice costs us something. In fact, if we're going to reach our full potential in Christ, as the theme is, as we went through the book of Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel, you see, if we're going to reach our full potential in Christ, we'll need to give him the most precious sacrifice we can give. The most precious sacrifice that we can give, of course, is ourselves. Now, in Matthew chapter 22, You see this situation where these Pharisees came together. These are some Jewish religious leaders. They came together. They wanted to trap Jesus in his talk. And so they sent followers, their followers, along with the Herodians to Jesus. And what they asked Jesus was, hey, Jesus, is it lawful to pay Caesar or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the government or not? It's what they asked Jesus. And depending on how Jesus answered them. He could have been become unpopular with the Jewish people who maybe thought he was being a traitor to the sovereign God. Or if he answered another way, he, he could possibly make himself an enemy of Rome. And so these Pharisees tried to trap him with that question in Matthew chapter 22. And so Jesus did something wise. And you wouldn't expect anything less from Jesus the son of God, he, he did something wise. He asked them whose image and inscription was on the tax money, on the denarius. And in Matthew 22, verse 21, they said to him, Caesar's. This, it, it's Caesar's image that is on this coin. And, and Jesus said to them, render therefore to Caesar. In other words, give to the government the things that are Caesar's, the things that are the government's, and to God the things that are God. So how, how does this come into play? With, with giving God the most precious sacrifice we can give. How does that come into play? Because if you look on that coin, you saw the image of Caesar on that coin. But when you look at human beings, you see the image of God. So you give to the government what belongs to them, but you, human, who have the image of God upon you, you give to God what belongs to him, and that is our whole selves to him. Give to God what is God. And so even though marred with sin, we're marred with sin, we we still have the image of God. It still teaches that throughout the scriptures. So give God the gift of you. If you want to reach your full potential in Christ. The most precious sacrifice we can give to the Lord. And it makes sense because God is the one who created us. And and of course, Jesus is the one who paid the price of redemption for us. And he paid the price of redemption. He, he, He paid the price, in other words, to set us free with his precious blood. To set us free from uh, the, the penalty of sin. To set us free from the power of sin. Jesus paid that. He paid that price. So we're set free from that bondage. So it makes total sense to give to God the things that are God's, which is ourselves. But then we're familiar with another scripture in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, 
I beseech you, I plead with you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God or in view of the mercies of God, in view, in other words, of how good God has been to us. I plead with you, just knowing how good he's been to you, that you present your bodies a living Here's our word, sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your what? It's your reasonable service. In other words, it is your true worship when we present our bodies a living sacrifice. And so when we give God the gift of us, when we give God us, ourselves, our bodies, when we present our bodies to him as a living sacrifice, Oh, that is real sacrifice. It's real sacrifice, I say, because it cost us something. Because when we present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, it it costs us our own plans. Remember, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourselves. So, So all those plans that you had for you, your own will for your life that you were following, set that aside, deny yourself. And so it cost us our own will for our own lives. It cost us our own plan for our own lives. And so when we present ourselves, it costs us something. It, it cost us our selfishness. It cost us when we give our bodies as a living sacrifice. It cost us our pride. It, it cost us that sin that we enjoyed. And yes, sin is fun for a season, but it, but it comes with... With some grave, with some serious consequences. You see, when we give ourselves as a living sacrifice to the Lord, it costs us that, that sin, those, those worldly pleasures. In fact, we will begin to make time for him. Even in a day that is jam-packed. When, when there's so much to do, we're still going to make sure that God gets his time. Why? Because we're giving ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. A costly sacrifice. A, a real sacrifice. If it's for his glory. But we'll do whatever he wants us to do, even though we may not feel like it. Why? Because... We've given our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. That's real sacrifice because it's costing us. It may cost you a little sleep. It may cost you a little more effort. It may cost you, uh, you know, a little more free time. So instead of using free time to watch TV, now you spend more time in, in prayer, communing with the Lord. See, real sacrifice, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord, it always oh, cost us. David understood that I'm not going to be cheap with God. And so I don't want to be cheap with God. And so we should have that mindset, Lord, you, you created this body. You, you gave me this very breath that I have. You gave me a right mind. And Lord, with everything I have, I give it back to you, Lord. Whatever you want to do in me and through me, Lord, I'm all yours. It's going to cost you, but it's, but it's worth it. And I'll leave you with this word as the worship team takes the stage. Reaching our full potential in Christ is impossible if we're not willing to give ourselves fully to the Lord. We'll never reach our full potential in Christ as we close 
2 Samuel, as we close this study with that theme of reaching our full potential in Christ, out of all those lessons, and you can go back, you can listen to the CDs, go on the internet if you want to listen to, to, to all of those messages of how to reach our full potential in Christ, but, but all of that won't mean anything if we're not willing to give ourselves fully to the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are and what you are to us. We're grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to get out of ourselves. Help us to overcome selfishness with our time, selfishness with our resources. Help us, Lord, to overcome just the lack of effort when it comes to the things of you, Lord. Help us to go full out from you, Lord. You deserve our very best in all things. And forgive us, Lord, for those times when we haven't done our very best for you or given our all to you. We ask for you to forgive us, Lord. If there's anything specific you want us to repent of, I pray that you reveal that to us. And we thank you that you are a merciful God, which David well knew. I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters in Christ under the sound of my voice, those watching via live stream. Lord, I pray your blessings upon them. I pray your strength for them. I pray that you use them in a mighty way as they surrender themselves to you. I pray, Lord, that they'll be more sensitive to your Holy Spirit than they are right now, Father. I pray that you would answer whatever prayers that they have according to your will and your timing. I pray, Lord, that you would just use them in a mighty way and and using the spiritual gifts for the edification of the body of Christ. I pray that you'll open up doors of ministry and witnessing, Lord. There's a dying world around us, but we're to be light and salt. And I pray, Lord, that you bless the remainder of their night. Bless them with traveling grace. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.